Chapter 27 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bobby Brill. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 27. Hints on shooting. When lying down. Loading. Put in the powder as best you can, and ram the bullet home. Lying flat on your back, with the barrel of the gun athwart your breast. It is easy to load in this way with cartridges. On horseback. Loading. Empty the charge of powder from the flask into the left hand, and pour it down the gun. Then take a bullet, wet out of your mouth, and drop it into the barrel, using no ramrod. The wet will cake the bullet pretty firmly in its right place. Firing. In firing, do not bring the gun to your shoulder, but present it across the pommel of the saddle, calculating the angle with your eye, and steadying yourself momentarily by standing in the stirrups as you take aim. Palliser. In each bound of the horse, the moment when the four legs strike the ground is one of comparative steadiness, and is therefore the proper instant for pulling the trigger. On water. Boat shooting. A landing net should be taken in the boat, as Colonel Hawker well advises, to pick up the dead birds as they float on the water while the boat passes quickly by them. Shooting over water. When shooting from a river bank without boat or dog, take a long light string with a stick tied to one end of it, the other being held in the hand. By throwing the stick beyond the floating bird, it can gradually be drawn in. The stick should be one and a half or two feet long two inches in diameter, and notched at either end, and attached to the hand line by a couple of strings, each six feet long, tied round either notch. Thus the handle line terminates in a triangle. See the figure I have given of a rude stirrup, the two sides of which are of string, with the stick for a base. A stout stick of this kind can be thrown to a great distance. Either it may be heaved, as a sailor's deep-sea lead or it may be whirled around the head and then let fly. Night shooting. Tie a band of white paper round the muzzle of the gun, behind the sight. Mr. Anderson, who has had very great experience, ties the paper not round the smooth barrel, but over the sight and all, and if the sight does not happen to be a large one, he ties a piece of thick string round the barrel, or uses other similar contrivance to tilt up the fore-end of the paper. By this means, the paper is not entirely lost sight of at the moment when the aim is being taken. Mr. Anderson also pinches the paper into a ridge along the middle of the gun, to ensure a more defined foresight. Nocturnal Animals There are a large number of night-feeding animals, upon whose flesh a traveler might easily support himself, but of whose existence he would have few indications by daylight observation only. The following remarks of Professor Owen in respect to Australia are very suggestive. All the marsupial animals, and it is one of their curious peculiarities, are nocturnal. Even the kangaroo, which is the least so, is scarcely even seen feeding out on the plains in broad daylight. It prefers the early morning dawn or the short twilight, and, above all, the bright moonlight nights. With regard to most of the other Australian forms of marsupial animals, they are most strictly nocturnal, so that if a traveller were not aware of that peculiarity, 
he might fancy himself traversing a country destitute of the mammalian grade of animal life. If, however, after a weary day's journey he could be awakened and were to look out about the moonlight glade or scrub, or if he were to set traps by night, he would probably be surprised to find how great a number of interesting forms of mammalian animals were to be met with in places where there was not the slightest appearance of them in the daytime. Batus. In Sweden, where hundreds of people are marshaled, each man has a number, and the number is chalked upon his hat. Scarecrows. A string with feathers tied to it at intervals, like the tail of a boy's kite, will scare most animals of the deer tribe, by their fluttering, and, in want of a sufficient force of men, passes may be closed by this contrivance. The Swedes use lapar, viz. piece of canvas, of half the height of a man, painted in glaring colors, and left to flutter from a line. Mr. Lloyd tells us of a peasant who, when walking without a gun, saw a glutton up in a tree. He at once took off his hat and coat, and rigged out a scared crow. The counterpart of himself, which he fixed close by, for the purpose of frightening the beast from coming down. He then went leisurely home to fetch his gun. This notable expedient succeeded perfectly. Stalking Horses Artificial A stalking horse, or cow, is made by cutting out a piece of strong canvas into the shape of the animal, and painting it properly. Loops are sewn in different places, through which sticks are passed, to stretch the curves into shape. A stake planted in the ground serves as a buttress to support the apparatus. At a proper height there is a loophole to fire through. It packs up into a roll of canvas and a bundle of five or six sticks. Bushes are used much in the same way. Colonel Hawker made a contrivance upon wheels, which he pushed before him. The Esquimaux shoot seals by pushing a white screen before them over the ice, on a sledge. Real. Both horses and oxen can be trained to shield a sportsman. They are said to enter into the spirit of the thing, and to show wonderful craft, walking round and round the object in narrowing circles, and stopping to graze unconcernedly, on witnessing the least sign of alarm. Oxen are taught to obey a touch on the horn. The common but cruel way of training them is to hammer and batter the horns for hours together, and on many days successively. Then they become inflamed at the root and are highly sensitive. Pan-hunting, used at salt licks. Pan-hunting is a method of hunting deer at night. An iron pan attached to a long stick serving as a handle is carried in the left hand over the left shoulder, near where the hand grasps the handle in a small projecting stick, forming a fork on which to rest the rifle. When firing, the pan is filled with burning pine knots, which, being saturated with turpentine, shed a brilliant and constant light all around, shining into the eyes of any deer that may come in that direction, and making them look like two balls of fire. The effect is most curious to those unaccustomed to it. The distance between the eyes of the deer as he approaches appears gradually to increase, reminding one of the lamps of a traveling carriage. The rush of an enraged animal is far more easily avoided than is usually supposed. The way the Spanish bullfighters play with the bull is well known. Any man can avoid a mere headlong charge. Even the speed of a racer, which is undeniably far greater than any wild quadruped, does not exceed thirty miles an hour or four times the speed of a man. 
The speed of an ordinary horse is not more than twenty-four miles an hour. Now even the fastest wild beast is unable to catch an ordinary horse, except by crawling unobserved close to his side and springing upon him. Therefore I am convinced that the rush of no wild animal exceeds twenty-four miles an hour, or three times the speed of a man. See measurements of the rate of an animal's gallop. It is perfectly easy for a person who is cool to avoid an animal by dodging to one side or other of a bush. Few animals turn if the rush be unsuccessful. The buffalo is an exception. He regularly hunts a man and is therefore peculiarly dangerous. Unthinking persons talk of the fearful rapidity of a lion or tiger spring. It is not rapid at all. It is a slow movement, as must be evident from the following consideration. No wild animal can leap ten yards, and they all make a high trajectory in their leaps. Now think of the speed of a ball thrown, or rather pitched, with just sufficient force to be caught by a person ten yards off. It is a mere thing. The catcher can play with it as he likes. He has even time to turn after it, if thrown wide. But the speed of a springing animal is undeniably the same as that of a ball, thrown so as to make a flight of equal length and height in the air. The corollary to all this is that, if charged, you must keep cool and watchful, and your chance of escape is far greater than non-sportsmen would imagine. The blow of the free paw is far swifter than the bound. Dogs kept at bay. A correspondent assures me that a dog flying at a man may be successfully repelled by means of a stout stick held horizontally, a hand at each end, and used to thrust the dog backwards over, by meeting him across the throat or breast. If followed by a blow on the nose, as the brute is falling, the result will be sooner attained. A watchdog usually desists from flying at a stranger when he seats himself quietly on the ground, like Ulysses. The dog then contents himself with barking and keeping guard until his master arrives. Hiding Game In hiding game from birds of prey, brush it over and they will seldom find it out. Birds cannot smell well, but they have keen eyes. The meat should be hung from an overhanging bow. Then, if the birds find it out, there will be no place for them to stand on and tear it, leaving a handkerchief or a short to flutter from a tree will scare animals of prey for a short time. See Scarecrows. Tying up your horse. You may tie your horse on a bare plain to the horns of an animal that you have shot while you are skinning him, but it is better to hobble the horse with a stirrup leather. See Shooting Horse. Division of Game. Some rules are necessary in these matters to avoid disputes, especially between whites and natives, and therefore the custom of the country must be attended to. But it is a very general and convenient rule, though like all fixed rules, often unfair, that the animal should belong to the man who first wounded him, however slight the wound might have been, but that he or they who actually killed the animal should have a right to a slice of the meat. It must, however, be understood that the man who gave the first wound should not thenceforward withdraw from the chase. If he does so, his claim is lost. In America the skin belongs to the first shot. The carcass is divided equally among the whole party. Whaling crews are bound by similar customs, in which nice distinctions are made, and which have all the force of law. Duck shooting. Wooden ducks, ballast with lead and painted, 
may be used at night as decoy ducks, or the skins of birds already shot may be stuffed and employed for the same purpose. They should be anchored in the water or made fast to a frame attached to the shooting punt and dressed with sedge. It is convenient to sink a large barrel into the flat marsh or mud as a dry place to stand or sit in when waiting for the birds to come. A lady suggests to me that if the sportsman took a bottle of hot water to put under his feet, it would be a great comfort to him, and in this I quite agree. I would take a keg of hot water when about it. If real ducks be used as decoy birds, the males should be tied in one place and the females in another, to induce them to quack. An artificial island may be made to attract ducks when there is no real one. Crocodile Shooting Mr. Gilby says, speaking of Egypt, I killed several crocodiles by digging pits on the sand islands and sleeping a part of the night in them. A dry shred of palm branch, the color of the sand, round the hole, formed a screen to put the gun through. Their flesh was most excellent eating, halfway between meat and fish. I had it several times. The difficulty of shooting them was that the falcons and spur-wing plovers would hover round the pit when the crocodiles invariably took to the water. Their sight and hearing were good, but their scent indifferent. I generally got a shot or two at daybreak after sleeping in the pit. Tracks When the neighborhood of a drinking place is trodden down with tracks, describe a circle a little distance from it to ascertain if it be much frequented. This is the manner in which spore should at all times be sought for. Cummings, Life in South Africa to know if a burrow be tenanted, go to work on the same principle. But if the ground be hard, sprinkle sand over it in order to show the tracks more clearly. It is related in the Apocrypha that the prophet Daniel did this when he wished to learn who it really was who every night consumed the meat which was placed before the idol of Baal, and which the idol itself was supposed to eat. He thus discovered that the priests and their families had a secret door by which they entered the temple and convinced the king of the matter by showing him their footprints. Carrying Game To carry small game as follow deer. Make a long slit with your knife between the back sinew and the bone of both of the hind legs. Cut a thick pole of wood and a stout wooden skewer eight inches long. Now thrust the right foreleg through the slit in the left hind one, and then the left foreleg through the slit in the right hind one, and holding these firmly in their places, push the skewer right through the left foreleg so as to peg it from drawing back. Lastly, run the pole between the animal's legs and its body, and let two men carry it on their shoulders, one at each end of the pole, or if a beast of burden be at hand, the carcass is in a very convenient shape for being packed. In animals whose back sinew is not very prominent, it is best to cross the legs as above and to lash them together. Always take the bowels out of game before carrying it. It is so much weight saved. I rode out accompanied by an after-rider and shot two spring box, which we bore to camp secured on our horses behind our saddles, by passing the buckles of the girths on each side through the fore and hind legs of the antelopes, having first performed an incision between the bone and the sinews with the coteau de chasse according to colonial usage. Cummings, Life in South Africa. After he skinned and gutted the animal, he cut away the flesh from the bones in one piece, without separating the limbs, so as to leave suspended from the tree merely the skeleton of the deer. 
This, it appeared, was the Turkish fashion in use upon long journeys in order to relieve travelers from the useless burden of bones. Hux Tartary. See also the section on heavy weights to raise and carry, especially Mr. Wyndham's plan. To float carcasses of game across a river. Sir S. Baker recommends stripping off the skin of the animal, as though it were intended to make a water skin of it, putting a stone up the neck end of the skin, thus forming a watertight sack, open at one end only. All the flesh is now to be cut off the bones and packed into the sack, which is then to be inflated and secured by tying up the opened end. The skin of a large antelope thus inflated will not only float the whole of the flesh, but will also support several swimmers. To carry ivory on pack animals, the North African traders use nets, slinging two large teeth on each side of an ass. Small teeth are wrapped up in skins and secured with rope. Mungo Park Setting a gun as a spring gun. General remarks. The string that goes across the pathway should be dark colored and so fine that if the beast struggles against it, it should break rather than cause injury to the gun. I must, however, add that in the numerous cases in which I have witnessed a herd of guns being set with success for large beasts of prey, I have never known of injury occurring to the gun. The height of the muzzle should be properly arranged with regard to the height of the expected animal. Thus, the heart of a hyena is the height of a man's knee above the ground. That of a lion is a span higher. The string should not be tight, but hang in a bow, or the animal will cause the gun to go off on first touching the string, and will only receive a flesh wound across the front of the chest. First Method the annexed sketch explains the method I have described in previous editions of this book. The stock is firmly lashed to a tree, and the muzzle to a stake planted in the ground. A lever stick, eight inches long, is bound across the grip of the gun so as to stand upright, but it is not bound so tightly as to prevent a slight degree of movement. The bottom of the lever stick is tied to the trigger, and the top of it to a long, fine, dark-colored string which is passed through the empty ramrod tubes and is fixed to a tree on the other side of the pathway. It is evident that when a beast breasts this string, the trigger of the gun will be pulled. Second method. I have, however, been subsequently informed of a better plan of adapting the lever stick. It is shown in the accompanying diagram. The fault of the previous plan is the trouble of tying the string to the trigger, since the curvature is usually such as to make it a matter of some painstaking to fix it securely. A, B, C is the lever stick. Notch it deeply at A, where it is to receive the trigger. Notch it also at B, half an inch from A, and at C, five inches or so from B. In lashing B to the grip of the stock at D, the firmer you make the lashing, the better. If D admit of any yielding movement, on C being pulled, the gun will not go off, either readily or surely, as will easily be seen on making experiment. Third method. I am indebted to Captain J. Meaden for the following account of the plan used in Cylon for setting a spring gun for leopards. Remove the sear or tie up the trigger. Load the gun and secure it at the proper height from the ground. Opposite the muzzle of the gun, or at such distance to the right or left as may be required, Fasted the end of a black string, or line made of horsehair or fiber, and pass it across the path to the gun. 
fasten the other end to a stake, long enough to stand higher than the hammer. Stick the end of the stake slightly in the ground, and let it rest upright against the lock projection, the back line being fastened nearly at that height. Pass round the small of the stock a loop of single or double string. Take a piece of stick six or eight inches long, pass through the loop, and twist tourniquet fashion until the loop is reduced to the required length. Raise the hammer carefully, and pass the short end of the lever stick from the inner to the outer side over the comb, and let the long end of the lever rest against the stake. The pressure of the hammer will keep the lever steady against the stake. To prevent the lower end of the stake flying out, from the pressure of the lever on the upper part, place a log or stone against the foot. An animal pushing against the black string draws the upper end of the stake towards the muzzle until the lever is disengaged and releases the hammer. In laying the long arm of the lever against the stake, sufficient play must be allowed for the contraction of the black string when wet by dew or rain. If a double gun is set, two stakes and two levers will be required, the stakes to be connected above and below the gun by cross sticks. The levers must be passed round the combs in opposite ways, to allow for the long arms pressing outward from the gun, and enable the levers to disengage without entangling. The carcass or live bait must be hedged round, and means adopted to guide the leopard across the string, by running out a short hedge on one side. In this case, the black line must be set taut, and some four inches from the line of fire. The breast then catches the string, and the push releases the hammer when the muzzle is in line with the chest. On this principle, two or more guns can be set, slightly varying in elevation, to allow of one barrel at least being effective. Bow and arrow set for beasts. The Chinese have some equivalent contrivance with bows and arrows. M. Huck tells us that a simply constructed machine is sold in the shops, by which, when sprung, a number of poisoned arrows are fired off in succession. These machines are planted in caves of sepulture to guard them from pillage. They use spring guns and used to have spring bows in Sweden and in many other countries. Knives Hunting knife A great hunting knife is a useless encumbrance. No old sportsman or traveler cares to encumber himself with one. But a butcher's knife, carried in a sheath, is excellent, both from its efficient shape, the soft quality of the steel, its lightness, and the strong way in which the blade is set in the haft. Pocket knife If a traveler wants a pocket knife full of all kinds of tools, he had best order a very light one of two and three-quarter inches long, in a tortoise-shell handle, without the usual turn-screw at the end. It should have a light picker to shut over its back. This will act as a strike light and a file also, if its under surface be properly roughened. Underneath the picker there should be a small triangular borer for making holes in leather and a gimlet. The front of the knife should contain a long, narrow pen blade of soft steel, a cobbler's awl, slightly bent, and a packing needle with a large eye to push thongs and twine through holes in leather. Between the tortoise shell part of the handle and the metal frame of the knife, should be a space to contain three flat, thin pieces of steel, turning on the same pivot. The ends of these are to be ground to form turn-screws of brass instruments. When this excellent contrivance is used, it must be opened out like the letter T, the foot of which represents the turn-screw in use, and the horizontal part 
represents the other two turn screws, which serve as the handle. It may be thought advisable to add a button hook, a corkscrew, and a large blade, but that is not my recommendation, because it increases the size of the knife and makes it heavy. Now a heavy knife is apt to be laid by, and not to be at hand when wanted, while a light knife is a constant pocket companion. Sheath Knives to Carry They are easily carried by half-naked, pocketless savages. By attaching the sheaths to a leather loop, through which the left forearm and elbow are to be passed. A swimmer can easily carry a knife in this way. Otherwise, he holds it between his teeth. Substitutes for Knives Steel is no doubt vastly better than iron, but it is not essential for the ordinary purposes of life. Indeed, most ancient civilized nations had nothing better than iron. Any bit of good iron may be heated as hot as the campfire admits, hammered flat, lashed to a handle, and sharpened on a stone. A fragment of flint or obsidian may be made fast to a handle, to be used as a carpenter cuts paper with a chisel, namely by holding it dagger fashion and drawing it over the skin or flesh which he wishes to cut. Shells are sometimes employed as substitutes for knives, also thin strips of bamboo, the sharp edges of which cut meat easily. Night glass. Opera glasses are invaluable as night glasses for, by their aid, the sight of man is raised nearly to a par with that of night-roving animals. Therefore, a sportsman would find them of great service when watching for game at night. A small and inexpensive glass is as useful for this purpose as a large one, but there is a considerable difference between the clearness of different opera glasses. End of chapter 27 Recording by Bobby Brill www dot english narration dot com